Continuing in Luke, and, uh, and we're in Luke chapter 7 today, just the end of chapter 7. Um, I think, do I have that? It's around page 1024, 6, 1026. I just didn't want to find it. It's in your bulletin. Uh, it's on the, pay, on the screen behind us. It's a, maybe a somewhat familiar passage to many of you. It's a very, you know, in God's providence, it's a very appropriate uh, passage for Communion Sunday. Uh, so let's, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered him, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. It's interesting, sort of, it's interesting to me at least, how, how many of the stories of Jesus uh, involve meals or have a meal as like sort of the centerpiece. And it's not, like at first I thought it was interesting, but then I realized that's, that's pretty normal for all of us, isn't it? I mean, you go and have a meal with people and that's when you have conversation. You get to sit and, and enjoy the time together and relax and, and speak and, 
and listen and hear one another. And, and it's even a great time often, especially at, at family tables. It's a great time of, of instruction and not like, not like hardcore instruction, but just like wisdom, passing on wisdom and helping with situations and things. Uh, but it's not just meals, though, that we see Jesus attending, but actual like almost feasts, we might call them, or, or dinner parties. Uh, We've seen one of these already in, Matthew, in, in Luke 5. So when Matthew, uh, the tax collector, is called by Jesus to follow him, Matthew has a feast, a, a dinner party, uh, where he invites his, his fellow sinner friends. And so there you see a sinner is the host, Jesus is the guest, and the Pharisees are the uninvited party critics. If you remember, they're watching this and they're like, oh, why, how could he eat with sinners? Today, we, here we are, we see a Pharisee is the host. Jesus is the guest again. And now a sinner is the uninvited party crasher. Which is interesting then because then we're going to get to uh, the end of Luke where Jesus hosts a feast. And Jesus will be the host, and sinners will be the guests, and, well, and that's it. Because that's what the Lord's Supper reminds us of, that Jesus is the host, and that the rest of us are sinners. Like, if you wanted to break, uh, you know, they say, you know, there's, there's two kinds of people in the world, people who like to categorize people and people who don't, so, uh, uh, or... Uh, in this case, there's two types of people in the world. There's Jesus, and there's sinners. And that's it. As, uh, as when Rich was preaching through Matthew 5, reminding us that, that Jesus is a friend of sinners, and it's a good thing because those are the only options that he has. If he's going to be a friend to anyone in humanity, he's going to have to be a friend to sinners. Which sort of uh, brings us to uh, the point of the title. Presbyterians and pagans alike. So, Herman Melville, in the great novel Moby Dick, wrote, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. And uh, I think he is correct. Uh, that quote, I love that quote so much, it's on a t-shirt that I own. Uh, I think that's a good thing for us to remember. Now, maybe before we get into this, you might be surprised that Jesus would even in, accept an invitation to eat with a Pharisee, which is kind of ironic in today's world that we have completely flipped the Matthew 5 problem, where in Matthew 5, the Pharisees are shocked that Jesus would, would ever stoop so low to eat with such uh, blatant sinners I think today we struggle with thinking that Jesus would ever stoop so low to, to eat with a Pharisee. But as one author put it as I was reading, he said, if Jesus didn't ever associate with moral living, religiously arrogant Pharisees, why a good number of us would not be in the kingdom of God. And we have to remember, Nicodemus was a Pharisee who came to Jesus at night and also came and helped Joseph bury uh, our Lord. 
Paul was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of some renown. And we're reminded that no one is beyond the reach of the mercy and grace and love of God. Which is a good thing because not one of us is beyond the need of the mercy and grace and love of God. And so before we get to the outline, let's just set this table, so to speak. Uh, some setting here. The, there's a Pharisee. We're going to learn from Jesus his name. His name is Simon. He invites Jesus to dinner. It's not just a casual dinner, but it's a banquet. It's sort of a, uh, it's a formal dinner. And so uh, normally, normally Jews in that time, they sat at normal tables like you and I do. But when it was a special occasion, when it was a feast or a special meal, they would, they would use the Greek custom of, of reclining at a lower table. And they'd be on couches or on pillows. And they'd lean on one elbow and, they'd, and their feet would be out to the back. And they would lean in and, and share a meal together. Uh, Often, typically, when they would get together, this is whether for meals or anything, just even visiting one another's homes, there were certain social etiquettes that were expected, certain things that you did. Like So because they all uh, typically wore sandals and walked on dirt roads and it was dirty and dusty, usually when you came to a person's home, uh, they would have a basin of water and a towel and they would wash your feet or have a place for you to wash your feet. It's sort of like when you go into someone's home today and you ask, do you want me to take my shoes off? Or you walk in and you see a pile of shoes. You just know, I don't have to ask. I'm going to take my shoes off in this house. It's just, it's a common courtesy though that they, the, the host would provide the water for you to wash your feet. They didn't have, like this, boys, you might wish, you might feel like you were born two millennia too late, but they didn't bathe regularly. Uh, that was a waste of water, and you might be thinking, amen. But, uh, and so there wasn't deodorant. So often they would have ointments, or they would anoint heads with oil, or they would have something to kind of refresh you when you came in. Also, when you, would, when you would meet each other, especially when you came to someone's home, they would greet you uh, with a kiss just to receive you. So like a handshake, like we would do. So we have these things, don't we? We, have, we understand this kind of social etiquette, and we understand that when they are lacking, there's this passive-aggressive message that's being sent. So if, if you come into someone's house, and he's shaking everyone's hand, and you get there, and he just kind of says, Hello? Or it's, you know, it's winter and he's taking everyone's coat and telling them, okay, so this will be in the upstairs master bedroom. It'll be on the, in the you know, you can get your coat later. And you walk in, he just kind of stares at you. Nice coat. Anyway, like you know, like you know something's off. Something's wrong. Uh, so this didn't, like, so in the opposite of this, there was, when we lived in Raleigh, uh, Amy and I had a couple over uh, after the Christmas Eve service. Uh, and their, one of their parents was visiting. And so the kids went off in the back room. This was before we were doing open houses up here. Uh, the kids went in the back room to play. We just had them over just quick, some drinks, some conversation, get to know them a little better. Uh, and it was either her parents or his parents. I don't remember which. But when they came over, uh, we, we went to take their coats, and the parents did not take their coats off. The parents did not sit down they stood 
at the edge of the living room, and I'm pretty sure her fa- the father stood there like this the whole time. And if I addressed them, they answered the question as quickly and shortly as they could. But the message was clear. They did not want to be at our house on Christmas Eve. They wanted to be home with the grandkids, having fun and doing things. And this was a complete, we had completely ruined their evening. Now, the, kid, the, the ones that were our age, they were, they were fine. I'd say they were oblivious to it, but uh, we got a phone call from the girl the next, on Christmas Day apologizing for the behavior. So it was good because then we realized, okay, we weren't inventing this. Like we know that when there's social etiquette and it's broken, you know there's an intentional, clear message being sent. And so that is what is going on. Another thing to understand about these things is that these feasts at that time, they were done in such a way that they were sort of open to whoever wanted to come. So certainly there would be the main guests sitting at that table, but then other people could come also, especially if you were throwing a feast for a traveling teacher, as Simon is doing here. Because people would want to be able to hear and be, at least be around after dinner to hear some of the conversation. And so this was a normal thing, that there would be other people who weren't necessarily invited, but were welcome. And so that is where this uninvited, unexpected party crasher comes in. A woman with a past. And so there are a few things, and it's really very few things, that we know about her from this passage. The first seems to be glaring. She's a sinner. But that's all we know, isn't it? I loved how last week Rich pointed out that, you know, when when John the Baptist sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? The passage never tells us it's John struggling. It may be that John knows his disciples are struggling. And so he sends them, tell you what, go ask Jesus. Are you the one? We sometimes, we just assume things and we don't even realize we're reading them into Scripture rather than letting Scripture tell us all that it wants to tell us. And the reality is, many of us assume that we know what this woman's sin is. But how? Why? I mean, there's even even scholars and theologians, they're convinced she's a prostitute. But we, we don't know that. We know that she's known in her town for her sin, which, by the way, is awful. You know, like, there are probably, I'm sure there are people in my life, there are probably people in your life that you basically, you identify them by their sin. And that's just awful. But this woman is known to be a sinner. You know, is she an adulterer? Has she broken up marriages? We don't know. We don't know. We know that she's a sinner. Luke keeps her name from us and her sin from us because honestly, we don't need to know, do we? You don't need to know every specific detail and sordid struggle that each of you have. You don't need to know that to know that you're, you're in a congregation of sinners. Now, maybe each of us needs one or two close friends who do know enough things about us that they can ask specific questions and say, hey, how are you doing? But we don't need a town knowing all of our deepest, darkest sins. We don't need to know that. 
to know that we are each sinners, you know, desperate in need of mending, as Melville says. She's a sinner. Even Jesus acknowledges she is a sinner. He says her sins, which are many. He acknowledges that she needs a Savior. The second thing we know, maybe not spelled out word for word, but we know she's repentant. So she's not just a sinner, she's a repentant sinner. She is driven to Jesus and from her sin. And isn't that the very definition of repentance? To turn from your sin and turn to God. She is a repentant sinner. Third, she's forgiven. It's not just that she's a repentant sinner. She's a forgiven sinner. Jesus tells us as much. He tells Simon in verse 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven her. And then he looks right at her just in case we missed it. He says, your sins are forgiven. And so because of that, this is a woman who is deeply devoted to and in love with Jesus. Because somehow she knows that he is connected to her forgiveness. She trusts in who he is and what he's able to accomplish for her. And so she loves him. It's amazing the difference between Simon and the woman in this passage. Like Simon, we're told one thing about Simon. He invited Jesus over for a meal. That's it. That's the only action Simon has in this passage. He invites. But then look at the woman. Just in verse 37 and 38, the woman learns where Jesus will be. She brings an alabaster flask of ointment. She goes to Jesus, weeps, wets his feet, wipes his feet, kisses his feet, anoints his feet. All of the action is in this woman pursuing Christ. And only then does Simon come back into the picture. He judges. He judges the woman for being such an icky sinner. And he judges Jesus for not judging the woman for being such an icky sinner. And so he's heard these stories about this guy. Maybe he's a prophet. Everyone's saying he's a prophet. He seems to know things. He seems to do things that only prophets do. And even at the widow, you know, he raised a widow's son from the dead. And, and they said, a great prophet is among us. And he says, if this dude was a prophet, he'd know. He'd know who's touching him. He'd know what she was like. Isn't it interesting? Simon assumes Jesus is not a prophet. Otherwise, he'd know what sort of woman this is. Jesus proves he is a prophet and more because he knows what sort of man Simon is. Like Simon, who never says anything out loud, Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking. Which brings us to a story with a catch. So we have a woman with a past and a story with a catch. It's a pretty simple story, isn't it? And we'd pride ourselves on being able to figure this one out, but, I mean, Simon was even able to figure it out. So, you know, there's, there's two debtors. There's two debts. One is about two years' worth of wages. One is about two months' worth of wages. So they're not, neither is an insignificant debt. 
Like to, to find out that you owe someone two months of your salary, that's a pretty good debt. But the other guy owes two years of salary. That's a, that's a bigger debt. But they have one thing in common. Neither of them can pay. And so the one to whom they owe the money cancels their debt. It just cancels both debts. Not because they're awesome. Because they need. They need him to cancel their debt. And he does. It's unexpected. It's still unexpected today. It should be unexpected to you. If you don't think it's unexpected, go to your bank tomorrow. Ask them to cancel your debt. See how they respond. Let me know. If they don't laugh at you, I'll, I'll change banks Tuesday. But this is a great little, isn't this a wonderful little kind of teaser of the gospel? I mean, it's not the full-fledged message of the gospel, but it's right there. It's this, this sample, this little sample size of the gospel. These two in this story have a hopeless condition, and it is met by impossible mercy. I mean, that's the gospel. And it's just right here in a little story that Jesus tells to Simon. And he asks him, I wonder, I wonder who will love the lender more? And the answer is so obvious that even a self-righteous Pharisee can get it. That's why all of us know the answer. I suppose the one who owed more. And then Jesus has him. The story with the catch. You notice how Jesus looks at the woman and speaks to Simon. He will not let Simon not see the woman. And if I were preaching and I were... Uh, going deep into a conversation, I was talking about things and I was saying things about uh, the sermon and making these illustrations and you were listening to me and all of you were listening to me, eventually some of you would be like, why is he staring at Ilona? What is he trying to get across to her? What? This is awkward. Why does he keep doing that? Because you're naturally drawn. When you're singing in a choir, they teach you, uh, or at least they used to teach you, if there's a soloist, don't look at the director. Don't even look at, don't look at the audience for sure. You look at the soloist because then everyone watching will naturally look where you're looking. And so Jesus looks at the woman and addresses Simon. And he says, Simon, do you see this woman? And Simon is forced to see the woman. Not this sinner not this interruption, not this life lesson for us all. This woman, this woman made in the image of God with, with dignity and value and worth. Do you see this woman? A woman with a great deal more respect and honor and love than you have, Simon. He says, you gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. I mean, I was just thinking today, like, how much do you have to cry to have produced enough water to wash someone's feet? Like, this woman knows her sin. She weeps over her sin. You gave me no kiss. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She anointed my feet with ointment. By the way, at this point, like, 
if you didn't ever break social etiquette, one thing you also never, ever, ever did was criticize a host. Like you never did that. Like no matter what they did wrong, you kept that to yourself. Maybe you'd on your way home, you're, you know, you'd get an earful from whichever your spouse noticed. You know, I'm not going to make this a sexist thing, but like, did you see that? They didn't even do, he didn't even shake my hand. Well, he didn't take my coat. Well, he didn't like, but you didn't do that at the party. Like that would be like as rude as you thought the host was, you would keep it to yourself. Here's Jesus like confronting Simon in his rudeness, in his sin. And he says to him, listen, her sins, which are many, are forgiven her. How do we know? Because look at her. Look at how much she loves. Jesus isn't saying, listen, the more you sin, the more you'll be forgiven, and then the more you'll love. So sin more. Like that would be a ridiculous assumption from this passage. What he's saying is, Whoever is forgiven little loves little. In other words, if you don't recognize how much you need to be forgiven, you'll never love God very much. If you think, like, yes, Jesus died for sinners, and it's a good thing because I know a lot of people that needed that, then you just don't get it. Like, if you are not with Paul saying, Christ died to save sinners of whom I am chief, then you'll never love God all that much. In fact, you'll be a little disturbed by His mercy to others as you see those sinners out there. The woman knows two things. She knows her sin and she knows her Savior. And both are required because Jesus is a Savior with authority. It's great that Luke practically ends the account with the other guest's question so that every reader, every hearer is forced to wrestle with the question. And he won't even answer it. You just It's this open question. Who is this? Who is this who even forgives sins? Because Jesus isn't doing what the priests do. Jesus isn't declaring in God's name that her sins are forgiven. Like when we have our confession of sin on Sundays other than Communion Sunday, there's always the assurance of pardoning grace. And that's always a Bible verse. Always. Because I'm not here to forgive your sins. I'm here to declare to you that God has forgiven your sins. And so you don't need to hear my words. You don't need to hear quaint quotes. You need to hear from God himself saying your sins are forgiven. And that is what we have. Jesus declaring by his own authority, your sins are forgiven. Jesus shows who he is. In fact, this isn't even the first that Jesus has shown who he is. Jesus shows us who he is in his word if we would simply believe. Look at what we have learned just in the first third of Luke already. Jesus' authority extends to disease, deformities, demons, and death. 
Jesus shows that he has authority over disease. Lepers are healed. The sick mother-in-law is healed. Jesus has authority over deformities. A withered hand is restored. A paralytic can get up and walk. Jesus has authority over demons. Too many to count. He just commands and they leave. And Jesus has authority over death. The widow's son is raised. And all by a mere word. All with a word. Be healed. Stretch out your hand. Get up. Get out. And your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Not just faith in general, which is something we think exists today. You just need faith. Like We think George Michael wrote one of the Gospels. You just got to have faith, the faith, the faith. But you don't just got to have faith. Like it matters where your faith is. Like in Greek, faith requires an object. Like the word in Greek, there has to be something that your faith is in. It's you put your faith in someone or something. Her faith in Christ has saved her. Because if it's not Jesus you're trusting, then most likely it's some version of yourself. It's you figuring it out. It's you getting it right. It's you determining that you're going to do better and try harder next time. If it's not the love of God that moves you to worship Him, then have you truly drunk deeply at His well of forgiveness and salvation? If we don't worship with love in our hearts for what Christ has done, do we understand what Christ has done to save us? Because we all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. May God have mercy on us. Or as the psalmist put in our call to worship, I love the Lord. Because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. When this poor man called, he saved him. Let's pray. God, indeed we do. We love you. And it's hard to, to separate who you are from what you've done. And sometimes we want to we wanna try that. We want to try to love you, not just for what you've done for us, but for who you are. But the thing is, we can't get away from what you've done for us because of who you are. Because you are the Lord, strong and holy and majestic. You are the compassionate one, slow to anger. You do not treat us as our sins deserve, but you invite and you call and you receive us when we repent. Because of your Son, our Savior, the one with authority to speak forgiveness because of what He has done for us. God, give us 
faith to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.